Welcome to another episode of Reenchanting, the podcast from Seen and Unseen. I'm Bal Tyndall. And I'm Justin Briley. And we, together with our guests, we ponder whether this materialistic, arguably disenchanted world is craving reenchantment from the mystery and the wonder of the Christian faith. Today, we're joined by Helen Lewis, who's a journalist, broadcaster, and staff writer for The Atlantic. She's the author of Difficult Women, A History of Feminism in 11 Fights, and has been writing and speaking about feminism, gender and the culture wars for several years and occasionally gets caught up in them herself. So today uh, we'll be asking Helen about the religious instincts that seem to underlie secular activism on both the left and the right, and whether she sees any way forward in re-enchanting feminism, activism and the culture wars of our day. Welcome, Helen. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, well, I hope you're enjoying the view I up am. here on the top of Lambeth Palace Library. Um, because we do film this on top of a library, we always begin by asking our guests, what are you currently reading? Well, I'm thrilled to be able to answer for once I'm reading a, a genuinely good book that I'm proud to say that I'm reading. <laughs> I read a lot for work and quite yes. often it's quite bad. But um, I'm reading Demon Copperhead by Barbara oh. um, Kingsolver, which won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, won the Women's Prize. It's a rewrite of David Copperfield, mm. which is not a book, I don't think I've ever actually read it. I watched Amanda Yannucci's film of it with Dev Patel. And so there is occasionally a bit where you suddenly realise, oh, hang on a minute, this is Mr. McCorber. Hang on a minute, that's Uriah Heap. <laughs> But I, I don't know the story well enough to, to actually right. know where all the beats are going to mm. be. But it's set in Appalachia. So it's set among, a, you know, with a, a people who would kind of refer to themselves as kind of white trash in the 90s. Mm. And it does a very good updating of what grinding poverty looks like now. You know, the right. things that Dickens yeah. was writing about and was interested yeah. in. Um, how What does that look like in the context of the opioid crisis, for example? Yeah. But it also does it in this very brilliant way without... Uh, bashing you over the head with a message, right? Yeah. And I find that too much stuff now, people have got great convictions they want to convey in their art mm. and it can sometimes lead to extremely unsubtle art. Mm. And this doesn't do that. It's a, primarily a very human story first. Right. Yeah, that That's sounds good. great. I have not read that. It's 600 which pages, is, which normally, I'm lucky I'm reading it on Kindle, so I didn't know this until I got involved. <laughs> so you weren't intimidated by the chunk I was not like, oh, yeah. what about this? I, I mean, I did that with um, A Place of Greater Safety by Hilary Mantel, her novel mm. about the French Revolution. Again, yeah, I read yeah. it on Kindle and I'd been reading for about several hours. Yeah. And I was like, I didn't see you very far through this. And it was at that point it said, you know, you are now 12% through 870 pages. <laughs> yeah. What have I done to myself? Ignorance is bliss sometimes with the yeah. Kindle, isn't Absolutely. it? Just don't even look. Yeah. Yeah. Don't yeah. even look how long you have left. Um, I want to start on a heavy note. Yeah. Which is Taylor Swift. Yes, good. <laughs> All you the really big braced issues. yourself for an actual philosophical... <laughs> what, no. um, that, because your most recent piece for The Atlantic, yeah. or at least at the time of recording, is about Taylor Swift and in particular her new relationship with Travis Kelsey. Yeah. And I, what, what do you sense in that relationship, also in culture's obsession with Taylor Swift? Well, actually, there's a nice link here to this, which is that Travis Kelsey, like many um, more Americans in public life, and I would say British people in public life, is, is publicly Christian. So his among his oh, many, many that. adorable mm. old tweets is one that's about Easter, where he says, shout out to Jesus for taking one for the team. <laughs> I love it. Wow. Which is both kind of, you kind of wince, but you're also like, that is in some ways a very great summation yes, of the Easter sure. story. Possibly quite sure, yeah. theologically accurate. In yeah, some ways, so, yes. so, which I think is really interesting. And it's the same thing. Um, 
Uh, Tom Oladi wrote a brilliant piece for Unheard about um, black Christian congregations in Britain, pointing out that many high-profile footballers, mm. okay. um, uh, you know, are much more open about their faith. They're, they mm. come from cultures where they're much more open about faith, which isn't something you tend to see so much in, in, in British sports stars from perhaps a white British background. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting because you know, writing so much about America, which is so much more a faith-based culture, people are so much more overt in their displays of Christianity, mm. is always an education to me living in, I think, what is, you know, it feels like it's, it's so much more dialed down in, in British public Definitely. life. Mm, yeah. mm. I, I read the article with interest. I, I afraid I'm not a Swifty myself, but I know many people who are. You are forgiven, including you, Belle. Yeah. Um, but what I mean, what what does this phenomenon and the interest people have, obviously, in the love lives of Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift? What what does this say about our kind of modern feminist culture? Mm. Well, I think it's actually primarily, I think it's about community. And mm. if you think about fame and fandom, they're sort of about the person that they're sensibly about. But there's actually a huge thing about bonding with other people and having shared reference points and mm. having an ability to, to stay in touch with people. I think that's the thing that really comes about from this is, you know, when you talk about Taylor Swift com- concerts, people do have all kinds of rituals. Mm. Mm. So they talk about the fact there's a song where she t- talks about making friendship bracelets. So they make the friendship bracelets yeah. and they wear them to the concert. Wow. You know, there are certain, you know, um, you know, they get very into wearing snakes because there's a whole plot line about she was called a snake and then she reclaimed the snake. <laughs> and so there's a couple of things going on there. One of which is that it's like a soap opera in the sense of you've always got something low stakes to discuss with your friends. And two, there are all these kind of things that you can do together. You can get excited about announcing your Spotify list to, of to, to yeah. people and sharing that kind of community with other people and so much of the work that I've been doing for the last couple of years has been about that idea about when your life is lived online mm. what does a community look like and is it as nourishing as an offline community is it in some ways a kind of poor substitute are there things about it that are sometimes better like if you've got a very rare niche interest geographically you might not be near anybody who shares that interest but on the internet you can find them instantly so it has profoundly reshaped I think mm. how communities form and how they function Mostly, I would say, in quite negative ways, but occasionally in positive ways. Uh, I was going to say, it, it almost feels like that there is a cult of Taylor Swift, but she's quite a benign cult leader. It's it's a sort of a nice... She's using her like powers for quite, good, yes, so far, quite, I would say. Seems yeah. to have me having a positive impact on her audience. Yeah. So, for example, um, Miss Americana, the documentary about her on Netflix, she agonises about speaking out against Donald Trump um, because, you know, she's got lots of roots with country music and very Trump supporting bits of America and what it means to be a kind of political artist. And Mm. she's become very involved in um, efforts to get people to vote, for example. Once you start thinking about cult dynamics, you do kind of begin to see them everywhere. It's a very natural Mm. human impulse to particularly be swayed by charismatic people I think that's the thing and want to follow them and actually to some extent I can see why you know the the appeal of of not trying to make an individual judgment on every single thing you know every single issue out there but to kind of delegate that to one person there's a standard question in political polling which is does x share my values you know it's one of those things Mm -hmm. where you look at a politician you say do they share my values and that's not exactly cultish but it comes from the same impulse right which is the world is very complicated and you look at this person you just think fundamentally are they like me? Do they care about people like me? That reduces down my decisions to a very narrow scope. And following a cult leader is an extreme version of that, where you let someone just decide what you wear and what you eat and where you sleep and all that kind of stuff. Mm. You've done some work on gurus as well. Yeah. Would you see, is Taylor Swift a sort of guru of romance or of, you know, I don't know, girliness, adolescence? Do you see sort of Probably not ex- as extreme as the examples you've tackled head on, but do you see little elements of that? There's definitely a big intersection between the gurus that I studied in The New Gurus, which is my Radio 4 series, yeah. and self-help. 
Okay. And I think that's something that you you see. And self-help isn't necessarily a bad thing. But Mm. I think when you look online, you begin to realise that people are always looking for answers. And they're looking for answers from, you know, from Google. They're looking for answers from Quora. You know, they're looking for answers from Reddit. And they are also looking for answers from big people who seem to have their lives sorted out. And so I think you're right. There's lots of stuff that comes through in those Taylor Swift songs, which is about being an outsider, which I find very hard to match up with the fact that she's now sort of effectively, prospectively Mm. a billionaire. But the songs are so much about being the kid who's on the outside, not the popular kid at school, Mm. you know, not the homecoming queen, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And I think they really speak to people who, you know, that's a pretty universal Mm. impulse. I'm Mm. always kind of fascinated to find out and try and talk to an adulthood who the popular kids in school were. And what was that experience like? (laughs) Because I don't think you ever meet anybody who who goes, yeah, it was school was amazing. I was actually Queen Bee. That was when my life peaked. (laughs) You know, you much more like to meet people who did have that sense of not really kind of fitting in. Mm. And people have that throughout their lives, I think, you know, Mm. that sense of being slightly on the outside. This is a very odd connection, but I just wrote an article about them, weight loss drugs and new weight loss drugs Mm. like um, a Zempic. And one of the guys who had lost a lot of weight in his 40s said to me, you know, people do treat you better when you're more conventionally attractive. All my life, I'd had the sense that I was outside the velvet rope. And guess what? I I was. Actually, it turned out (laughs) I was. When you're more conventionally attractive, people do treat you better. And I think a a huge number of people you speak to them do have that sense that there is some kind of velvet rope and life is happening. You know, the cool people are hanging out just somewhere that they aren't quite. Yeah, I think that's quite a universal experience. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us a bit about your experience Helen, because I remember when I listened to your BBC documentary summer of last year um, about the sort of whether social justice causes were kind of becoming akin to a new religion. You talked a bit about your own religious background growing up in a Catholic environment, but sort of not embracing it yourself. I Mm. think you probably call yourself an atheist. If you call yourself anything, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I I don't believe in God and whether or not you want to put that down as agnostic. I mean, I presume to some extent everybody's agnostic and that nobody has proof one way or the other, but Mm. it's about your belief and I would say Mm. I don't have Mm. the belief. Mm. But yeah, I made this programme called The Church for Social Justice for Radio 4 and it was kicked off by... Elizabeth Oldfield, who was then at Theos, the think tank, mm. saying to me, do you think that, you know, growing up in a Catholic environment, you replaced religion with, with feminism, which is something that I'd written about for 10 mm. years? And it was interesting to me both that she, it was an interesting question. And it was also interesting that she seemed slightly nervous about asking it, that I would seem, that I would think it was slightly offensive in some way. Right. And I think there are people, you know, when I made that programme, lots of people who, lots of, actually genuinely, generally Christians and Jewish people and other believers seem to quite appreciate it and find it quite interesting. Yeah. The people who were furious about it were the kind of rationalist atheists right. who for them the idea of belief is irrational mm. and their self-view of their politics is I'm a rational person, I've made mm. rational political decisions. And to, so, to imply that there was any kind of emotional or spiritual component to it to them was, was, was an offensive thing. So I now through that process understand what Elizabeth was getting at but... To me, I don't think it is offensive at all to say that it, these are both kind of moral questions. I think if you're talking about politics, most of the people would say, what do you want politics to do? Well, I want it to make people's lives better. Mm-hmm. I want it to improve the general condition of, of humanity. And so that is a kind of moral and spiritual quest. It's not just, you know, you have to have some kind of overarching ethos into which to slot particular policy prescriptions. So that was my feeling about the, the, the links between the two of them. Did, did you sort of ever have any inclinations towards religious belief in the traditional sense yourself or I don't I don't think I did as I say my my dad is a deacon in the catholic church mm. my mum was an RE teacher she was an eucharistic minister so I you know I went to, to mass a lot if, if it was really if it was going to take it would yeah, have taken yeah. and it and it really didn't but the thing I do now getting older appreciate more about it is that sense of um ritual and the sense of continuity and the sense of community mm. 
So the things that, you know, I went through my much more radical kind of new atheist phase in the, in the 2000s. But the thing that came back to me is, you know, for example, we would often at Christmas lunch have people around who didn't have anywhere else to go. Just a really simple thing, um, you know, that I didn't really kind of appreciate as a child or that my parents would go, they would do what they called hostel suppers for the homeless. You know, they would go out and make sure that people were getting fed. And that sort of stuff that I think happens much more often during a a religious framework, Mm -hmm. you know, that we don't really even think about. That provides a a kind of backbone of community to people who really Mm. wouldn't have anything else. And, you know, and and I I do think the thing I I have taken from Christianity is the idea that every human life is really worthwhile. It's not about like some people are life's winners and, Mm. you know, those Mm. people are rich and they deserve better things or they're more intelligent so they deserve better things. The idea that people just by being alive are worthy of value, yeah, yeah. I think is something that, you know, that is, a, that is, I would say, the bit of Christianity that I hope I've clung on to despite my lack of belief. So, yeah. And do you think, we've already touched upon it in Taylor Swift context, but do you think there's an element of belonging that people are searching for and then they find it in a particular social cause and everything that goes along with that? Oh, hugely. Yeah. And I think you can, <laughs> there's a quite a provocative political point, but I think you can in some ways trace American polarisation. You know, it's incredibly polarised politics. There's yeah. a whole load of structural reasons for that about states and the way that the country set up from kind of minority rule. But some of it also is a bit of kind of post-Cold War malaise, right? Mm. The idea that mm. the one thing that you were as an American is that you were not Russian, you were not communist. You know, there was a, there was a very obvious external set of people that you weren't part of. Mm. And actually in the absence of that, how do you de- define a community? And I think that's something that has happened to lots of people. You know, people want to have a sense of who us is and it's the job of politics to try and construct that in a positive way and an inclusive way, right? To say, this is Britain, we have this set of values, we're very welcoming to people. It's not about whatever it might be. It's not, a, it's not racially based, it's not faith based, but it is about this set of people and this is who we are. And that's a really, really tricky thing to do. Historically, throughout history, that is not how humans have operated their, their tribal beliefs, right? Um, and so that's why I find politics, particularly at this moment, really, really tricky and interesting. And to that extent, you talk, you know, obviously on that documentary about the way in which you do see in some ways some of those social causes, um, sexual, gender, um, race, the the kind of communities that those foster and the, the kind of the intense passion, if you like, that goes with it, having that kind of quasi-religious kind of nature to it. I mean, what we, this show is called Reenchanting and the idea is kind of playing on Max Weber's sort of living in a disenchanted world. And and I, do you think that is a form of re-enchantment? Are people managing to re-enchant their lives through those causes or is it is it more is it not enough? What do you think? I'm quite cynical about it in terms of party politics because mm-hmm. the two different examples of opposite ends of the political spectrum that I looked at were one, you know, Trump rallies, you know, Donald Trump's rallies where people chanting lock her up, having that um that collective effervescence yeah. experience, mm-hmm. Emil Durkheim's phrase. Um and the other hand being the Jeremy Corbyn rallies on the mm-hmm. left, you know, the t- time when he went to Glastonbury and people are chanting, Oh, Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. They are clearly you know, having this moment where they think this is it. Finally, I've got a politician I can believe in. Mm. Mm. And I think in both senses, although those people don't have a lot in common in any other way, they both felt a sense of like, oh, you're here. You know, you're the not exactly the you know the Messiah, but a sort of secular <laughs> Messiah. You yes. know, finally, someone has come along that I can invest all my trust and faith in. And the problem with that is that politicians will inevitably let you down. Yep. 
you know, they have to make compromises. They have to work within a party system. They have to work within an electoral system where they constantly have to be trimming their sails. And so it's it's really, really hard to invest that level of almost spiritual devotion in a kind of secular figure like a like a politician who is essentially a kind of deal maker. That's mm. that's what a politician mm. has yeah. to do. Mm. Yeah. And you say in your book, which I finished on the train this morning, we'll totally get into it, but <laughs> you say, and you say it specifically about feminist icons through history, but I think it's true that we want to erase thorny parts. We want to fit things into nice, neat boxes. We want history. Uh, we want definitive lines of good, bad, right, and and wrong. And that doesn't quite work. Well, it doesn't work at all, I suppose, does it, when you map it onto human beings because we are none of those things. Right. We want saints, really. Yeah. That's That's what I write about in Difficult Women yeah. is it is much easier to believe in. And actually, when you read the suffragette memoirs about Mrs. Pankhurst, the way they talk about her is as this kind of saintly figure of great wisdom who sort of occasionally passes among them. <laughs> but, you know, the real Mrs. Pankhurst was an incredible strategist. She was monomaniacally obsessed with the vote for women. She was not interested in doing poverty or Irish home rule or any of the other causes yeah. that were around at the time. Which unfortunately is also what made her a very successful companion, yeah. is being very headstrong, um, you know, obsessive, uh, non-compliant, you know, quite difficult to be around. And and that's the that, those are all the things that make you an effective single-issue campaigner. However, the desire to build people up into something to be able to sort of worship them yes. requires you to pretend that all of the downsides of them don't exist. And you know, in the case of Emmeline Pankhurst, we're talking about somebody who you know, kicked her own daughter out of the Women's Social and Political Union because she was seen to be not focused enough on the on the main uh, you know main thrust of the campaign. So she was ruthless. And you know, can a saint be ruthless? Well, actually, if you look through the Christian tradition, quite a few saints were quite ruthless. Yes. yes. And they were also sometimes you know not people you would necessarily find very easy to live with or be around. Yes. I, I mean, I, I've often thought St Paul. You know, we sort of have the stained glass window picture of St Paul. I imagine he was quite a difficult person, though, you mm. know, because the way you, if you read his letters in the New Testament, you know, he, he's, he's kind of, it strikes me as quite an obsessive kind of character in some ways. And he's not, re- he's not reluctant to tell people what to do, is he? Which <laughs> exactly. Which gives them, give them guidance. He's not backwards in coming forwards about, yeah. about that sort of thing. I, I, I guess, you know, we, we do live in an age where people like to mythologise their heroes and so on. Um, someone who I've spent a bit of time thinking about, and you've actually done a sort of viral interview with, is one Jordan Peterson, mm. who's sort of come to represent a very interesting kind of character in our culture, I find, who's on the one hand, obviously, a bit of a political provocateur um, on social media, but also, you know, has come to be regarded by many people as a sort of sage, you know, and lots of young people, men especially, flocking to his lectures you know, and he talks quite eloquently in many ways about meaning and purpose and identity yeah. and and seems to be kind of pointing people back towards the Christian story quite often in sort of, at least for the psychological value of it. So first of all, it'd be fascinating to get the, the background to that viral interview you had with him for GQ magazine <laughs> and what you make of the phenomenon of Jordan Peterson. I think you've picked up on something really interesting, which is that from his early work, uh, which was about Jungian symbolism. Your maps of meaning is all about interpreting dreams and about these kind of deep mythologies that lie behind stuff. He has kind of drifted from that into now, I would say, kind of an explicit Christian tradition. Mm. And it's very funny. I have a friend who's Irish Catholic who similarly to me grew up going to mass all the time. And we just sort of occasionally say to each other, did you just not want to be so stressed about all this and just, have you not thought about going to mass? <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, religion has a lot to offer a lot of people. Yeah. And, you know, instead of kind of going through these kind of great agonies of the soul, 
maybe you are just maybe you are religious and that's that's fine um one of the best and most sympathetic reviews of um 12 rules for life which was the dawn peterson book that mm. went absolutely mega viral was by a blogger called um scott alexander who's a rationalist and atheist saying that the thing he found it most similar to was the writing of c.s lewis right because mm. it is all about that idea about struggle and suffering mm. and his idea of life that comes through very strongly from his work is that life is this kind of intense level of mm. struggle and, and, and bad things happen to you. And, you know, he has had in his life a series of health setbacks over people in his, his family. So I think it's kind of, you know, it, you can place it in that, in that tradition very, very easily. The thing that unfortunately for me, where I, I part ways with it, I'm, if people's personal faith you know, helps them, um, feels them grounded in their lives, I'm all in favour of that. It's, it's yoking it onto particularly that Americanized right-wing culture war that's the problem mm-hmm. for me. Um, and that was what I found when I went to the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship conference, which he was involved in mm-hmm. organising. It was a kind of strange dichotomy, very sweet, earnest Christians talking about, you know, poverty. And, and you know, my mum my would always say, like, do you understand that Jesus was basically a communist, right? Mm. It's very weird that, like, American right-wingers love the New Testament so much when Jesus' whole vibe in the New Testament is, you know, give up give your... Give it all away. Give it yeah. all away and just go wander around and be an itinerant preacher. And, you know, turning over the um, tables in the temple and the moneylenders and... Mm-hmm. You know, and the parable of the Good Samaritan being that actually the high status people in society are often, you know, the most horrible and thoughtless mm, and selfish. Mm, mm. Very hard to see how that yokes onto that particular form of um, American evangelical right wing belief, particularly American e- white evangelicals. Huge support for Donald Trump, sure. who is about as far from the teachings of the New Testament as I think any human <laughs> has ever been. But that, so that was the strange thing to me about that art conference. It was, you know, there were lots of people who were genuinely interested in things like poverty reduction from an explicitly Christian mm. standpoint. And then there were people people who were engaging in this sort of apocalyptic culture warring kind of stuff. Mm. Um, And I think if you look at anything like, you know, you look at the refugee crisis, the kind of Christian response to that, you know, is is very different to the right-wing culture war response Mm. to that. Mm. It's very much, you know, these, you know, when I was hungry, you fed me, you know, all of that kind of idea that you get, I I just find that that, that abuse of Christianity, I would say in some ways, to be a constant feature of modern politics, particularly in America. Yeah, I, I guess, I mean, I read your article with great interest on the ARC conference, the Alliance of Responsible Citizens. Um, and it was, I wasn't there, but I, I saw some of the talks as well. And, and I, I, just as you describe it, it is it, almost like you weren't quite sure what the identity of this conference yeah. was. And there were different kind of visions of what the conservative future could be. And I guess it need, I guess we're at a point of these folk deciding, well, well, are we kind of allied to this very, I don't know, political answer to this or is it about something that rises up from the ground in a faith kind of way both voices seem to be present at the conference but neither seem to have quite the yeah and you see that even within you know i mean i know most about the catholic church so i mean raised in it about the kind of the current pope coming from the jesuit tradition very much about poverty and obedience and and not about flashy status symbols and you're consciously rejecting a lot of the kind of vatican sort of you know pomp and circumstance and how that again that slightly doesn't fit with some of the mm. the priorities of the, the american catholic church yeah. i think I'm, I'm not so certain about the one here because i haven't looked into it but it is it, yeah I, I did feel like that about the fact that you know which which of these sides is going to is going to win mm-hmm. and i would like it to be this is coming from an atheist i would <laughs> like it to be the, the christian side because i felt that those people were talking actually in terms that I really agreed with, yes. right? We mm. derived at the mm. same principles, which mm. is that you should look after other people. Mm. You know, you do have a responsibility if you've done well in life to pass on that success and that joy to other people. You know, I would rather live in a 
society that functions rather than in which 1% of people are winners and live in their gilded skyscrapers and everybody else is grubbing around in the dirt below them. You know, those things are really important to me and I felt I felt much more kinship with the people who That's were making those those arguments. Mm, that is interesting. I wasn't there, so I don't really have a right to speak, but from the little glimpses that I've caught like online and things, there also seems to be quite a lot of um, mythologising in that things are confusing right now and complex and so there seem to be but you can tell me that i i'm wrong or that i'm only seeing things very narrowly there seems to be this idea of well if we put it in this apocalyptic myth if we put ourselves you know in this role and the people who disagree with us in this role then that will help us to make sense of what's of what's happening did you sense that there was this sort of bigger story wanting to be written i think that is a kind of classic form of um kind of clickbait right is that you can you know, having worked in news for a long time, if mm. you sort of say the sky is falling in, people go, oh, I'd like to read about that. If you say, mm. you know, things are getting bad, things are bad, but sad, and, and the grand sweep of human history, you'd rather be born now than any previous time. <laughs> yeah, sure. People, it's not very, it's not, not really clickable. So yeah, yeah, so I think yeah. there is a, there is a trend to kind of eye-catching apocalypse kind mm. of um, baiting. And, and I don't, you know, I said in the article, I can't deprecate that because that is journalism does that too. You know, I'm not okay. entirely blameless. People yeah. want to read about big arguments and they want to read about big fears um, and you know they want they want a sense of kind of clash of, of identities and ideologies to clarify who they are and where mm. they sit in relation to all of this so you know those aren't impulses that will ever entirely go away mm. and you know there were good things about that too in the sense that Paul Marshall who's the hedge funder who's um, an investor in uh, Unheard and GB News did talk about you know from the perspective of somebody who's very very rich about the need to have ethical markets and some of the work that had been done about anti-monopoly stuff you know I think that's one of the big curses about the fact that people who talk a lot about free markets turns out are kind of basically fine with monopolies which is the opposite of a free market right. and he was very much rebutting that and saying you know good markets need good good regulation um, and so I would love it if, if, if I heard a bit more about that and a bit less of, you know, woke atheists are trying to cancel Christmas, which I think slightly <laughs> to some extent, you know, that kind of that stand of kind of cultural warring slightly makes everybody yeah. Yeah. roll I, their eyes. Sure. I, I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing, though, because I do feel like a lot of the ground has shifted, though, obviously, in the last few years. And you've kind of been writing about that a lot because <clears throat> on the one hand, you know, from the description you've given of the art conference there, you, you go in and you, you think, oh, this is conservative in ways I'm not too, you know, comfortable with in some respects. Well, that's what I would say. Is one of the things that really drove me away from Catholicism, apart from my, you know, agnosticism, atheism, was the church's attitude towards women priests right. and, and, and homosexuality. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what's really interesting is now when you go to conservative conferences, gay marriage is not up for debate yeah. now. Yeah, well, I, I was going to say, that's this is the interesting shift. So obviously now the the hot button issues tend to be inevitably trans mm. and other issues around critical race theories and that kind of thing tend to be what, what I don't know. I and guess abortion in America, and abortion, and not yeah, so much here. Yeah. yeah. And to that extent, you know, some people would label you a conservative, Helen, because you, you are more on the gender critical side of the feminist debate and so on um, around issues like trans and so on. I mean, I saw just as I was sort of, you know, doing a little bit of research in advance of you coming in, that there was a, an event in Brighton that got cancelled where I think mm. you were going to speak to, um, the name escapes me now, the author of Time's It was up, Hannah Barnes um, and Time to Think. We were going Time to talk to, think, to the Brighton Skeptic yeah. Society, which That's is right. very funny because that is a, you know, a, a, a rationalist free thought group. Mm. And actually, bless the 
organiser who ended up having going through an enormous amount of grief has ended up resigning from that society Gosh. saying I, I think the society has betrayed its principles we were supposed to be here to be able to discuss things and it turns out that some people here don't share those those values I would push back on you saying that I'm conservative in that because I think what I'm actually um, I'm actually the progressive liberal side which is that mm. I say that you, that you know you can be born with a certain set of chromosomes and act in any specific way right. um, and actually what I think is culturally conservative is saying if you are a somebody with XY chromosomes who wants to wear a dress, that's that's the thing that makes you a woman. You know, I you know, people have gender dysphoria, really deeply felt mm. sense of alienation from their own gender. They should absolutely be free to pursue that and live in whatever category they feel fits for them. But I don't like some of the the rhetoric that we get about the idea that, you know, I knew I was a girl because I wanted to wear makeup. Mm. Well there's mm. quite a lot of women out there who yeah. don't wear makeup yeah. actually. And I think it's quite conservative to say that that's something that is innately female or associated with womanhood. But you know, these are really difficult waters to swim in, as you say. One of the difficulties I think that the British left has in talking about it is that if you look over to America, it has become an incredibly polarised issue. Mm. And you have right-wing politicians who are pursuing incredibly punitive um, you know, treatment bans, for example, even for adult transgender people, for whom I think you know, there should be much more latitude to make their own decisions. Obviously, children are a different different category, but that that completely cloud that polarization clouds and ruins any possibility of discussion because people feel that they are under attack. That people would rather they don't exist, mm. and that's not a ridiculous fear because we're just talking just after Russia has said essentially the promotion of LGBT issues is is un-Russian and it's something mm. they want to crack down on. And there have been similar statements by Polish politicians, Hungarian politicians. You know, it is happening in Europe now that mm. there are people who are anti-LGBT. And, in this very overt way because they think it is sort of decadent and postmodern and they would they would rather people live in a very old-fashioned set of, of gender norms. Um, so, you know, those are not ridiculous concerns for people from mm, those communities sure. to have, I think. Yeah. Mm. I suppose the issue is where's the line with... Because you don't want to cry cancel culture all the time when actually we do live in a, essentially a fairly free society and so on. But at the same time... There, you know, you weren't, you know, it's sad to hear that that debate, that discussion at least was, was cancelled uh, in Brighton. And what, what's your feeling about sort of where, where the lines are getting drawn in this country when it comes to well, there's a funny postscript. There's yeah. a funny postscript to that story, which is that a feminist group has swip, swooped in, right. and they have experience of organising events, mm. um, gender critical events. So they already know how to liaise with the police, liaise with security, which I'm sorry to say, many feminist events now mm. now need. Um, and we are now doing the event with twice as many people right. able to come as, as previously were. There is a great appetite for people to have these discussions, and I think it's. It's offensive and wrong to say that these are only people who are, you know, falsely concerned or part of some kind of moral majority or like, you know, latter day Mary Whitehouses, whatever that, you know, those the kind of things get thrown around. I think people genuinely do have concerns about, oh, they just fundamentally want the facts and yeah. they want to get a sense that they're going to get to hear, you know, multiple perspectives on mm. something like this, which is mm. very new. Mm. And that's definitely how I have my feelings about things have matured in terms of free speech norms. You know, when you have these big new questions, COVID being another example, I think you do have to have some kind of latitude to hear the arguments, as long as you're hearing them from people who are well-informed mm. and arguing in mm. good faith, right? Mm. Obviously, COVID being another similar example, there's a lot of people who know absolutely nothing just reaping YouTube views out of this. But, you know, there was a, a spread of opinion among credentialed scientists in the area and you want that debate to be had mm. out in the open mm. and in a way that 
acknowledges the uncertainty. We're not going to blame anybody if they don't, you know, if they're, they're, they're making their best guess on the available evidence. And so that is, you know, I now feel quite strongly about freedom of speech because I think you want to hear the, the best version of the minority view. Charlie Munger, the great investor who's just died, I think had this saying about until you can articulate your opponent's case in a way that they would recognise, you don't really understand yes. the issue. And I think for me as a journalist, and I'm sure you probably feel this too, you want to understand, you don't want to just say that other people who don't think the same as you are wrong or evil. You want to understand that they, what their priorities are that are different or what the life experiences are that have got them to that point that are different. Mm. And you should be able to articulate mm -hmm. that. Do you think that part of the issue as well is that this discussion is being monopolised by people who, for example, um, have never, ever advocated for women's sports before? You know, people who have actively said female athletes shouldn't be paid the same as male athletes. But now it's a hot topic that they can kind of get on. And so they're speaking about, you know, transgender athletes and all of that. So do you find that it's is it frustrating for you when you want to have these conversations and you want to have them in as gracious and informed and free a way as possible that sometimes they're hijacked by people who aren't informed, but also they're not they may not be speaking up for women like women assume they are. Oh, yeah. No, I think that, I mean, you're entirely right to identify the fact that some of the pushback to evolving gender norms comes from people who you know, have this very old fashioned idea about what men, women are and what they should do that is fundamentally kind of anti-feminist in the mm. way that I would say, you know, women are just like this mm. and men are just like this. And actually, I would argue there's a pretty broad spectrum with some overlaps. And actually, most people are, sure. are you know, not stereotypes. They're a mixture of stuff. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. But this is the kind I mean, you must have this in discussions of faith as well, is that you have to, it feels like you're walking down a very narrow tunnel with people sort of screaming at you from both sides and throwing kind of Molotov cocktails into your path, which you have to dodge. That is the condition of having any kind of discussion in an era in which everybody gets their say in a very unfiltered way. Yeah. And that's got, you know, I've, as somebody who's kind of very privileged to be able to have a, a, you know, a writing position, I know that my voice is elevated. So from the people on the sidelines, they feel they probably have to scream pretty loudly to get heard at all. Mm. But that is my experience of writing about difficult and contentious issues. It might be mm. Israel-Palestine, it might be gender, it might be any, it might be abortion, it might be anything, is you have to kind of maintain a level of focus as people try and drag you off and, and, yeah. try, and, and, try, and, and try and raise the temperature of the conversation constantly too. I mean, could, could you sketch a picture of of how you see the ground now lies when it comes to feminism. I mean, and I guess it's going to probably look a bit different in the UK to the US or, or yeah. whatever. What's, what kind of, you know, could you draw a picture of, of where those lines lie now? Because a lot of people feel like it's a constantly moving thing at the moment, in, in, so fast in our culture. I mean, it's been moment. an incredibly successful yeah. movement. I write yeah. this in Difficult Women. If you look back in, you know, just over 150 years ago, women didn't have the right to go to university. They didn't have the right to vote. They couldn't control their own fertility. You know, there were jobs like magistrate that were just barred to women. Mm. You know, it has mm. been brilliant at smashing down those barriers. And what was easier in the early ways, not easier in the sense of it was equally hard fought, but intellectually the case is easy to make to say, we want to be treated exactly the same as men. Mm. So we want to vote like you get the vote. Mm. 
that I think is a, a case for equality that people can either reject or accept. But it's a very simple case to make. Say we want to be full citizens. We want to be able to do all these jobs. What's more difficult now is that um, you're getting situations in which biology is really relevant, yeah. and that's always been a really vexed question because women don't want to be defined by their biology because it's been traditionally used to say, well, of course, you know, you've got the, your wandering womb, so you can't make decisions, or you know, whatever it might be, or women just naturally want to do X, Y, Z because of their their hormones, and so there's wrestling with the kind of the facts of biology, but also saying sometimes we're going to need to be treated differently. And women's sport is a really good example of that. And actually, I think it's one that, um, yeah, a, a subject of gender that men find it much more easy to talk about because, you know, the stats are really obvious. If you've been through male puberty, you are just stronger on average. You know, you're going to be able to run faster. You're going to be able to lift much. I've been trying to do a pull-up now for a year and training quite intensively <laughs> to that. And I still, I still can't do it. Women's upper body strength compared to men is just, you know, it's just completely... I can Way only do one distant. if that helps. At but that's all, what I mean. But... Yeah, most men can do one pull up, which is very, very upsetting. Um, you know, my husband walked into the gym after like years of being out and just went and did, and I was just like, I hate you. I've been here for months. But you know that that is just a very stark difference. Now there's there's a lot of um. There's also a lot of grey areas within that, right? So, for example, you might want to treat trans men, so biologically female people, who then take testosterone and go through male puberty that differently because you are going to get some of the benefits of that but not all of the benefits of that so you know things aren't that simple binary you do have to take that into account but that's where feminism is 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 not struggling exactly but it's having to make more sophisticated or, or complicated less um straightforward equality-based arguments you know uh thinking about something less controversial like uh menopause policies at work you know, and there's a big argument, really, which I don't know where I sit on about, you know, obviously you want to take into account, you don't want to lose women from the workforce because of this transient phase, but also you don't want to treat all women like they're kind of delicate little mm. objects. And a lot of discussion about pregnancy is the same, right? It's the sense that this is to some extent a natural process. You need to be not, you know, terrified of it, but it is also a natural process that has historically killed a lot of women through history. So you do need to be respectful of that and you do need to make allowances for that. So that's where the ground is. You know, the, the interesting thing is some of the other stuff that's coming up now and it will be very interesting to people who are concerned with the dignity of the human person. So regardless where you stand on abortion, and that's a very contentious issue, surrogacy presents a lot of the same issues. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think it's been often been people from Christian backgrounds who've been talking about their concerns about commercial surrogacy. It looks like the government has rejected moving towards a, a more um, commercial um, network. There are countries in the developing world which have rolled back their previous policies right. because it was seemed to be so exploitive. It was rich right. people coming in mm, and mm. basically deciding that they own somebody for the duration the, of that the pregnancy. The womb, as it's called. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. America is being America in lots of states, fine with commercial yeah. surrogacy. And, you know, there isn't really an organised resistance to that in America. It would be a very strange situation. And once again, in the same with, say, with, with gender, that actually British feminists end up being the ones who are articulating a very biology material based critique mm. of, of some of those issues. Mm. I am um, speaking about your your book. I, like I say, I finished it on the train this morning. And so the final little um, epilogue, I suppose, is a manifesto for a difficult woman. Um, it made me think of, I mean, there's lots of quotes about difficult women, but Jane Goodall, I think she says it doesn't take much to be a difficult woman. That's why there are so many of us. Um, uh, but anyway, I was reading your manifesto and it made me feel a bit teary. Good. Actually, <laughs> yeah, in the same way that um, like uh, America Ferreira's speech in the Barbie movie made me feel a bit teary. I don't know if I should be admitting this. And there's a Taylor Swift song called The Man, which again makes me feel a bit teary. And, and I think um, 
Do, will you cringe out of your skin if I just quote a tiny bit? Maybe a bit, but go on. I'll drink my tea <laughs> and, and, and so try the, not to. The part, so the whole manifesto, it's like a two pages long and it's so beautiful and it just outlines what a difficult woman is and what a difficult woman is not. And there's just these few lines where you say, she feels an affinity with other women, the texture of their lives and experiences. She believes that whatever separates them is less important than what unites them. She listens to women who have been places she will never go, perhaps including the strange country called motherhood and knows that their choices are not a commentary on her choices and I love those few lines so much because I think one of the accusations thrown towards modern feminism is how individualistic it is mm. and that doesn't seem to be both within your thoughts within this book but also in the 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 historic um well the 11 fights that you outline you seem to place your feminism utterly and completely rooted in community. Can you talk to us a little bit about about that feminism and community as opposed to feminism as an individualistic identity? Yes, I call it the kind of you go girl, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. oh, you know, we don't have enough female dictators. We don't have enough female serial killers. Like, when will we finally <laughs> achieve equality in all these professions that we've historically lagged behind in? And, and I think that is, you know, that is the reductive ad absurdum of, of some of those ideas of very individualistic feminism. The idea that, you know, and I think it's probably because it's a marketing technique, but the kind of like, you can't now boast about having done stuff. I mean, maybe you can if you're American, less so if you're British, we cringe too much. Mm. But instead it's like, I was so pleased to be the first woman to do X. And you're like, actually, aren't I amazing? Is the subtext <laughs> of that? But obviously if I just wrote, I'm really amazing, well done me. It, but then if you've kind of, yeah, if you framed it as a victory for all women. Right. Don't all, and, and it's, it's actually, I'm not sure that 90% of women think that you becoming, you know, CEO of this blockchain company really feel a benefit from that, yeah. actually. Thank you. So, yeah, I think that's, that, that was what I was reacting against, was that idea of feminism as a marketing tool, which mm. has ebbed back a bit now. I think we're now in a period of kind of slight backlash, but there was a bit where it was, it was a branding exercise. Mm. Um, and, you know, I was really interested to write about trade unions, which I think are a kind of fascinating, imperfect tool for advancement. And um, there's a story of Jayaban Desai in that, who um, came over from uh, via Tanzania from Gujarat and was in uh, working in a photography laboratory, and was uh, which was primarily for both migrant labourers and lots of young male students and lots of older women. So they were people who were deemed not to be able to kind of advocate for themselves. And they did, you know, and her fight ultimately failed, but it did lead to a huge discussion about the fact that the trade unions at the time were very white and male dominated. Were they doing enough for, for women? Were they doing enough for, for migrant labourers? And so that was one of the fights I was really keen to include because it was a collective struggle. Mm. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the kind of superpower of humanity is our ability to form communities. It is what meant that we, you know, we managed to, you know, everything that we can see here, you know, no one ever, no, no one could build the Palace of Westminster on, on their own. Um, you know, we have to see ourselves more as being kind of ants in the anthill. And, and I wanted to write about that, about the kind of the joy of that and the, and the kind of sense of community and communion that you feel by plugging away at something really intractable. And, you know, you mentioned my controversial, uh, you know, nature to some extent. And that has been really hard, you know, mm. to find out that people think that you hold opinions that you don't feel that you hold, you know, mm. is, is, a, is a gross experience. I wouldn't mm. recommend it to anybody. The one thing it does do is give you a huge sense of, of, of people who are on your side. It makes yeah. you really understand. And I think, you know, if you see that through communities, through history that are facing struggle or outside forces that it binds you together you have the most meaningful relationships in your life when they are under pressure mm. in the same way 
you know, I'm, I'm, we're Catholic, so I'm part of a big family. And, you know, we've had some family health difficulties this year and that has really bound us together. Yeah. And it has made me appreciate having a family and having siblings in a way that I hadn't before because there's been that outside tension. Mm-hmm. And so the, the duality of feminism is that often for for women, it's, you know, the, the suffragettes had you know, cabbages thrown at them and they were mocked in all of these other ways. But when you read their memoirs, they talk about it as the most meaningful time right. of their lives. So a lot of them talk about it like joining an army, mm. you know, that they were suddenly, they were living these lives they never would have expected. They were doing something bigger than they ever expected and they were forming friendships that um, Annie Kenny and Constance Lytton and I write about and they came from yeah. very different backgrounds, the mill girl and the aristocrat. And yet even 10 years after it was over, they would still write to each other because they'd been through this this thing mm. together and I think that's so yeah. that's such a powerful experience you know that kind of psychologists talk about the difference that some people have post-traumatic stress syndrome lots more people have post-traumatic growth you know the idea that when you've been through something really awful actually quite a lot of the mm. time you will emerge mm. with this renewed sense of purpose or clarity about what is meaningful in your life and I think that's the same thing with with being part of a political movement and I presume it's the same being part of a faith community too yeah. uh, I think there's a lot of, lot of overlap with that one thing I did want to ask you about Helen is in our first season of Reenchanting, we had Louise Perry on mm. the show, who I'm sure you you know, mm. and um, she obviously has written this book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, and I think in some ways her argument is that the the problem sometimes with the modern feminist movement is that it thinks it's a win if women become more like men. But her point in the book really is that actually, when it comes to sex sexual activity. Um, it's not in women's best interest to act like men. And um, and interestingly, she comes to quite, in a sense, traditional conclusions, um, quasi-Christian conclusions in, in a way, about actually perhaps we should have a return to monogamy and chastity and, and that kind of thing in our culture. And and I think she's sort of been going on a, something of a spiritual journey uh, mm. at the same time. Um, she spoke to us a little bit about sort of, you know, her feelings on that on the show. And then I notice other people in that same sort of sphere, Mary Harrington, Barry Weiss, arguably reconnecting with her Jewish faith. Um, I don't know whether there's any overlap with with where you are at, but obviously for some people, they are kind of putting a certain form of feminism together with a certain sort of Christian ethos. I, do, what do you make of that phenomenon, if it is one? No, I think it is a real phenomenon. I interviewed um, Louise for the Radio 4 interview series. I did The Spark mm. about that book. And it was really interesting to me because lots of what she said I found very compelling and lots of it I, I disagreed with. The first thing I think I disagree with is I think she relies on a kind of nostalgia for a world that never existed. Right. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm my favourite period of history to study was the 18th century. And it was really a lot more like now than you would think. And even the Victorian era in which everyone was supposedly hiding their table legs because they were incredibly prudish, there was also an incredibly huge underworld. You know, think about the world that Dickens writes about of, of yeah. prostitutes in London. Yeah. You know, there was, I think it was more like today in the sense of a kind of sickly level of morality over, you know, people indulging some pretty base desires. So that is my, you know, when we talk about the fact that people didn't used to have sex before marriage, well, actually, if you start looking, it turns out that people had some pretty interesting definitions yeah. of what counted as sex, and you know, in in, in 16th century, sixteenth um, and seventeenth century England, and then they kind of like you know sort of licensed themselves in those ways, and and I so I, there, I think there's a part of that. I think there's a kind of nostalgia in that vision, which I don't necessarily um, think is is warranted. And also, I think the fundamental difference between my thinking and Louise's thinking is I am much more fundamentally a liberal than she is. I, you know, I, I, 
I think it, I don't think everybody has to be the same, and I think what's right for me is not necessarily right for everybody. And I'm very wary of attributing things that make me happy and saying, well, that's the way that the whole world should be. And you know, and I think she's much more comfortable saying, I found the one true way, and this is mm. actually this is what will make mm. you make you happy. Mm. But I think you know, uh, <laughs> I think it's I think it's what's good about both her and, and Mary Harrington's thought is that they are both very good and provocative writers who have a great clarity of thought. And I enjoy reading them both for the same mm. reason, mm. which is that you understand more what you think when you kind of sharpen your, your mm. knife on a, <laughs> on a tool like that, which is that, you know, and Mary writes very compellingly in her book about the kind of, she calls it meat Lego, the idea that we treat our bodies in this way, that we aren't really part of them, that they're endlessly mm. modifiable. And I think that's a really good... Meat, meat Lego, Lego. so gross. <laughs> and then she talks about meat Lego Gnosticism, which is sort of like a great, just anyway. But, but the idea that you get from being on, online and, 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 mm. and that critique about the fact that your body doesn't really matter. Mm. Yeah, you know, I've been thinking about that a lot as well in terms of identity. The idea that when we got online, we were just all going to be brains in a jar. You were just going to swim in this thing where only your opinions mattered. And mm. actually the, what I think has happened is that people have been desperate to pile back labels onto themselves. You know, the kind mm. of phenomenon of those people's bios where you see where it lists sort of everything that they, you know, down to what they had for breakfast as a way of defining themselves. People want to have those those badges on them on themselves. And I think, you know, I think, Mary writes very compellingly about that, about that feeling that, you know, the, the brain in a jar thesis has been been debunked. People don't really want that. And they try and recreate some of the experiences of the offline world. Uh, you mentioned, who was the other person well, you mentioned? Well, I also mentioned Barry Weiss. Yeah. Um, yeah, who, again, um, is, is an interesting character. Because, and the reason I kind of put those three together, Mary, Louise and Barry, is that I've seen them all sort of become a bit more explicit about faith alongside their commitments to, you know, um, feminism, although they all arguably lean a bit more conservative than... Yeah, you know, than I do, certainly. Yeah. Um, I also think that I'm not sure whether or not any of them grew up in a religious as opposed to, I mean, I know Barry is, is um, culturally Jewish. I'm not mm. sure where she grew up in a particularly observant family. Mm. And and certainly the way that Mary writes about her her 20s seems to have been a lot more exciting than mine. And I think one of the reviews said, you know, the, the, the book reads like the kind of Confessions of a Justified Sinner. Right. I think there's definitely a sense, again, with her that she's been through this this journey and she's now on a, on a different path. Mm. And I don't think I have that having come from a Catholic background. Right. You know, there wasn't a sense that I kind of suddenly went, oh, religion, hang on a minute, mm. never never tried mm. that before. Mm. For me, that was always part of my, my drumbeat growing up. But I think Barry Weiss is a very interesting example because I would say particularly, I mean, she has always been interested in in Israel and she got into a lot of trouble mm. in her career in the liberal media um, for those sympathies. But um, I think that since the October the 7th terror attack by Hamas, she's become a lot more invested in the idea of Israel and also in her, in her Jewish faith, I think particularly having kids maybe has affected this. And that's something that I think about a lot because Gary Young's brilliant book on identity, which is called Who Are We, says that you most feel your identity when it's under attack. Mm -hmm. So if you have uh, uncertain immigration status, you know, when someone asks to see your papers, uh, or when you're, a, when you're, a, you know, I, do I feel like a woman very much in my everyday life? Not enormously, except, you know, if I got catcalled or someone sure. was obously dismissive of me in a way that I just thought, you're just the next, I'm a woman. <laughs> and, and it reminds you, and I think probably in, in all three of their cases, in kind of different ways, they they feel that they are embattled or that they are making a minority case, an mm, unfashionable mm, case. Mm, mm. And in that case, that is something that will often make you, I think, feel your identity more mm. more strongly. Yeah. Um, 
so much of what you're saying seems can be brought back to identity and can be brought back to belonging. And that seems to be like a real recurrent theme, which I don't have a question about. I'm just finding it really interesting. <laughs> but um, Well, you end up with your writing that you end up writing a lot about stuff and you end up realising that you've been writing about the same yeah. things. Yeah, and sure. they're obviously, and you don't necessarily appeal to it, but you're right. For example, I'm I'm really interested in, uh, you know, in the ways that we tr- we trick ourselves uh, or the ways that we aren't, we don't understand ourselves. So I've written about things like people who, uh, there was a spate of American academics who pass themselves off as being from minority racial backgrounds and they were actually white and yeah. and the kind of motivations to why you might do that, which weren't grifting. They weren't charlatans as far as I can see. It sprang from a genuine feeling that they, they identified with oppression and being oppressed and they were sympathetic and that tipped over into thinking I'm actually part of those groups, mm. which is really fascinating, right? The idea that you don't just pass yourself off as black, but you also go and join the NAACP. You always get involved in, in activism and civil rights activism. Um, that's That sort of stuff is interesting to me. I wrote about during the pandemic, there was a spate of what looked like um, Tourette's ticks that mm. were sweeping across um, TikTok particularly. And the way they could work out that it was definitely being fed by uh, influences on TikTok was there was a girl in, I think, St Helena, which is an island in mm. the middle of absolutely nowhere yeah. in the sea with about 100 people on it, who was having the same tick as a very popular influencer saying beans. Right. And so you had this situation where, it, and these ticks seem to have abated now, the stress of the pandemic, being separated from all your friends, doing all your lessons online, spending all this time with people, you know, not to go too Freudian about it, but the idea that people's anxiety was welling up mm. and kind of turning into these these mm. expressions, these, these ticks, and how you should and deal with that again these people were not putting it on yeah. right they were not yeah. charlatans yeah. they were not frauds, fraudsters they weren't aware of what they were doing mm. they were expressing themselves in this way they weren't fully um, you know this, this need was welling up within them mm. and that's again why I find faith really interesting you know what are the compulsions that take people into feeling there's something missing in their lives or there's something that they get spiritually that they mm. don't get materially I'm that the psychology of that is always mm. interesting mm. yeah yeah well, it's, those are the types of things we kind of probe on re-enchanting. This idea of why aren't we sat if we if our, and people would argue against the idea that we're in Weber's disenchanted um, reality. But if we are, why don't we feel like we've made it? Like, why aren't we satisfied with that? If everything is rationalised, then we can understand and grasp and contain and explain everything. Why aren't we happy? Um, or happy with that? Why because are we people, seeking re-enchantment? Because people you love will still die and they'll still get yeah, sick for no reason. Yeah. Things will still happen that you have no reason for, that you can be a good person and bad things will happen to you. I just mm. think the world is fundamentally chaotic and you can intellectually yeah. understand that, but it still feels wrong, doesn't mm-hmm. it? And I think... absolutely. You know, to some extent, I think maybe we've replaced religion with conspiracy theories Mm -hmm. and it does a similar job of organising the world in a way, in a pattern. So instead of the kind of your medieval ploughman would have said it's God's will that the crops have failed. Now, if somebody says it's because the Hollywood elite is drinking adenochrome Mm. that, you know, this has happened Mm. and and it functions in a similar way. And I hope that isn't offensive to you. No, not in the least, but I think think you've put your finger on that, that conspiracy theories essentially function because they give people a sense of explanation and order to some things that are often more complex. Mm. And and yeah, absolutely. Religious belief, I think, can can be like that as well. I suppose, I suppose the, the problem with whether they be conspiracy theories or these kind of social justice movements or on the left or right, um, taking the place of largely the Christian story is is that they're often, they take the worst bits, the judgmental <laughs> yeah. kind of, you know, uh, all out, you know, 
proselytizing zealotry. And, and uh, the identification of heretics. Absolutely. But without yes. the bit where it's not really up to you, it's up to God. Exactly. He's the only one who can yeah. judge people. Um, oh, interesting, I mean, yeah. Tom, I think Tom Holland said something like this when we, we had him on some time ago, that the, the problem is that he likes, in a sense, original sin as a doctrine in Christianity because it's it's kind of equalizing. He says, well, we're all fallen. We're yeah. all, uh, none of us are going to get this right. And so you have to have capacity for forgiveness, for grace, because you're, you're actually just as sinful as the person next to you in the end. There's no, none, none of us are, you know, a, a saint. We're all sinners at some level as well. So I guess, I mean, you, you mentioned at the beginning, you know, some of the things you do appreciate about the Christian tradition. Is that one area where you would say, yeah, Christianity probably rather have that than some of these more, uh, heretical type, um, you know, or heresy hunting sort of versions of, of yeah. quasi-religion in I our did, culture. I, I find that the story of Jesus is genuinely inspiring in that it is a story of somebody who people want to turn into, uh, you know, a guru. They want to put him on, on a throne mm, and he mm. consciously rejects that. He lives the very humble lifestyle. He does, you know, he sleeps with everybody else in the kind of communal thing. You know, it, it, it is about a rejection of material goods and wealth. And and I I, I find that really that is really that idea of humility, particularly mm, that you mm. get in that tradition. I find really inspiring, and the idea that you, you know that there is some worth of people beyond their intelligence or their wealth or whatever it might be. And one of the things that I think is genuinely um, interesting about studying the Bible, if you look at the Old Testament, right, being special is almost always bad. Being chosen by God generally leads to, I would say, a downturn in your fortunes. Mm -hmm. You're asked to sacrifice your eldest son or subjected to a plague of frogs or eaten by a whale. And the, you know, the consistent lesson is that being chosen is not something to kind of brag about. It still requires you to be in a state of humility. And then that's carried through to the, the New Testament too. And so I think those lessons are the ones that when I, you know, still occasionally I will go to church at Christmas or to a carol service or something like that, that I try and kind of think about, even though, mm -hmm. as I say, I'm not, I'm not a believer. Mm. Well, Helen, that's been the quickest hour ever. Thank you so, so much. Just gone by so fast. And it's been so interesting, the the themes that run through your week, but also the really interesting specifics. Where you we did go up. from Taylor Swift to, yeah, the New <laughs> Testament. <laughs> my two favourite subjects. <laughs> right. And we didn't get to talk about my favourite article of yours from the past year, which was the Satanic Temple one, but maybe next time we can, maybe we next can get time. into the politics of the Satanic Temple. Um, for now, thank you so much for re-enchanting feminism with us today on the show. Thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs>